Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have called us together. And Lord, we thank you that um, you call us to be washed and sanctified in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. He said, I'm really sorry, he said. I wish I had some other kind of news to give you. I said, amen, and he said something else. I didn't catch and did not knowing what else to do and not wanting to give him, make him have to repeat it. And me, to have it fully digested, I looked at him for a minute and he looked back, it was then, I jumped and shook hands with the man who had just given me something no one else on earth had ever given me. That's a poem entitled What the Doctor Said by American poet Raymond Carver. Um, You might be familiar with him, you might not. He was in the mid to late 20th century. Um, And it talks about facing truth Telling the truth or receiving the truth can be quite difficult. In this case, he was facing cancer, and the doctor was telling him that the cancer would kill him. In our Corinthian text today, St. Paul continues to confront the growing church in Corinth and give them instruction. So if you would open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll look at this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we are today. Last week we talked about arrogance and humility. As you're opening up, you might recall that uh, the lack of humility had made the Corinthians blind. And they were, spiritually speaking, they were evaluating and judging other people all wrong. And St. Paul calls them out on it. We also talked about how Jesus contrary to what many people think today, does not forbid us to judge, but he forbids us to condemn. And finally, we're stewards of God's mysteries, St. Paul tells us, and being stewards of the mysteries, we carry with us the word of God and the sacraments of Jesus, of the gospel, into the world. Part of being a steward is judging and guarding. And the Corinthians are doing anything but that, quite frankly. As we look at this passage, we see a couple of things. First of all, we see that their arrogance continues to blind them to sin. And second of all, we see that their arrogance and their blindness inhibit them from confronting sin in the church. So let's talk about blindness to sin. We've spent a lot of time talking about how arrogance and immaturity blind one to sin in in Corinth and today, but today we're dealing with a situation in Corinth that isn't at all hypothetical. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. St. Paul writes to them, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Let's stop, full stop right there. If that didn't make you stand up and take notice during the first reading, I don't know what will. What's going on in the church in Corinth that Paul's addressing? Incest. Nothing short of incest. This son is having an affair. That's what the terminology here, being with, right? It's like sleeping with in our modern English, right? It's, it, it's the terminology for that. And this man's taken his father's wife. Now, most scholars think this is probably his stepmother, not his actual mother. And yet, that is, is a vile thing. And God's forbidden it. As followers of Jesus, these early Christians, St. Paul thinks, should know God's laws on the subject of sexual ethics. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7 is pretty clear. I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version, by the way, but I'll read it for you. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not lie with, with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So, you know, Leviticus is pretty clear on this, and St. Paul is pretty clearly telling the church in Corinth that the moral law of the Old Testament still stands, that Christ did not abolish that. How can Paul be so condemning towards this man? Well, because this man, his actions, particularly with his sex life here, are taking him to hell. And that's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. Now some argue today for the acceptability of homosexual sex or laxness in sexual morality of any kind, homosexual or heterosexual. And they argue for that because they say, well, we don't sacrifice bulls on the altar anymore. You know, that's Old Testament stuff. We're New Testament people. But friends, that's a false comparison. Jesus came and took away the bloody sacrifice by his bloody sacrifice, right? For the, the sacrifice of bulls and the ceremonial law. But does that make the Ten Commandments um, null and void just because Jesus did that? No. So the moral law stands, and St. Paul is being very clear about that here. The word that he uses here is the Greek word pornea. Pornia, which means all sort of sexual deviation, any kind of sex outside of marriage between a man or a woman is sin, full stop. That's the historic Christian position on the matter. And Paul is showing that they, in violating that, are setting up the church for failure. Some make the argument that Jesus never spoke conclusively on these subjects. And while it's true that he does not deal exhaustively with them, he doesn't need to. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. Leviticus is part of the law. 
And so Jesus doesn't need to speak to things that are settled. There are subjects, these subjects have been written about for some 2,000 years. Don't fall into the trap that somehow we in the 21st century are different from everybody else. And somehow these things have never been talked about or thought about. Paul makes it clear that the Christian faith does not include such behavior. And they are an abomination. Still, the, the behavior is an abomination and a perversion of nature with spiritually deadly effects. So don't be blind to sin. And the same goes for us today. Don't let your arrogance and the sophistication of our culture blind you to the plainness of what sin is. How do we not be blind to sin? We look at God's word. We look and put ourselves under its authority. Second of all, confront sin. Confrontation of sin starts with us. Jesus is very clear about that. When we find ourselves in sexual sin, we must immediately repent, confess our sin, and cease to entertain it continually. That God's grace might come in and the Holy Spirit might change us so that that toxin can be vanquished from the soul. But worse than the sexual sin is the sin of pride. For you see here, the sin of pride is actually what blinds them to it. The sin of pride is actually what keeps them from addressing it as a church. Look at verse two. You and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? St. Paul says. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? They're prideful and they ought to be mournful. The Greek word here could be translated sorrowful and lamenting too. Because it's a scandal that's brought to the Holy Church. And it's bad for this individual. Even the pagans. Remember we talked in our first uh, sermon in this series about how to Corinthianize was a euphemism for to be sexually immoral. Even the Corinthians think this is wrong. Look at verse uh, 2b again. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul speaks here about being spiritually present with them. How can he say this? Because he's their father and God. He's their bishop, if you will. He's more than that, he's their apostle. And so he is present as a representative of Christ here in their midst, and he's giving them instructions for this man who's committing incest. Paul speaks here as an apostle, and he says that this man is to be what we would call today excommunicated, barred from receiving the sacrament, and barred from the community of the church. Why is that? Is that because Paul's being really mean and harsh? Well, it is harsh, 
But he's doing this for the sake of the man and for the sake of the church. Look what he says, that he might be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so the spirit may be saved for the day of the Lord. What St. Paul's saying here is that turn this guy over to his own ways, show him just how wrong he is so that his life gets so rotten that he repents and comes back and at least can be saved. Do you see what's going on there? Paul is doing this out of love. This is the definition of tough love here. To be saying something confrontational and to do something unpleasant for the sake of the long goal. And we see in 2 Corinthians that it actually works. News has reached St. Paul of this terrible offense so we can be pretty sure that this isn't the first time that this has gone on. We can be pretty sure that this is someone prominent in the community, this is someone prominent in the church, someone that's been catechized, someone that knows the truth, and yet someone who's rejected it. Excommunication only takes place as a last resort after all other sorts of pastoral care have failed. So it's important to see that too. In addition to giving them instructions, St. Paul gives the rationale for his teaching. Why is this so serious? Well, not just for the soul of the man, but for the sake of the church. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the fact that, you know what leaven is? It, it can be yeast. It can be baking soda, baking powder, right? You put a little bit of leaven in your cookies, the other, the other day I was making cookies and I forgot to put the baking soda in. Guess what happened to the cookies? They just kind of flattened out as a pancake, right? A little bit, a teaspoon I think in this case, a little bit of leaven leavens the entire batch. And what St. Paul is saying here is that a little bit of evil and sin corrupts the entire body. We've seen that before, haven't we? Some of you have experienced it, right? With rotten ministers and rotten people in the church. I know some of you have experienced it. It's a hard thing. It's a painful thing. And it brings scandal to the church and it hurts individuals that are part of the church. So Paul says, rather, purge that out and celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity, which can also be translated purity, and truth, and truth. St. Chrysostom, the uh, famous preacher from the fourth century, writes, Paul's not just referring to this man only, but to others as well. The old leaven is not just fornication, but sin of every kind, which much must be rooted out of the lump. Paul is so harsh here because the church is in danger of being compromised. And you'll sometimes hear people talk about what goes on behind closed doors as a private matter. I got news for you. Not if you're a Christian. Not if you're part of a body. Not if you're part of the church. When one suffers, St. Paul later says, we all suffer. 
Sin's not merely individual, it's corporate. That's why we confess together. That's why we confess to the church and not just to God. Because we break our relationships when we sin corporately. We sin against God and his law, we sin against the church, we sin against each other. Look at verse 12 and 13 here. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such as one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What's Paul saying here? That as Christians, we don't judge the world. It's true, we talk about what God stands for, what God expects of us, and the mercy that Jesus gives us so that we can stand before God, justified. But we can't judge the world. They don't know God. Their actions are beyond the purview of the church. They're beyond the Holy Spirit. I mean, in some ways, I gotta be careful when I say that. The Holy Spirit's always at work, right? Trying to draw people to himself. But people outside of the church are going to behave as people outside of the church behave. And we shouldn't be surprised when that's rotten. But people inside the church, we are to judge, St. Paul says. People inside the church, we are to evaluate because it's that important. In the old prayer book, there's something called notorious sin. And it has to be dealt with for the sake of the church. It's public sin, it's scandalous sin, and when that sin occurs, whether it's clergy, leadership, or laity, it has to be confessed. And in fact, with the rubrics of the prayer book, the, the time that someone, the only time someone's denied Holy Communion is if they're unrepentant in notorious sin, and the priest can deny them communion. Otherwise, it's on you, as 1 Corinthians says. It's a necessary thing for the good of the church. Lutheran scholar David Yego writes, the disappearance of corporate discipline is more than the abandonment of ancient customs, now grown uncouth. It marks the point at which the whole array of fears and confusions and wayward cultural codes conspire to alienate us from the faith and mission of the apostolic church. We see it going on today. How many of you picked up a newspaper or opened up your news feed and read about the scandal in the Roman Catholic Church this week? Three days ago, a grand jury reported that there was credible evidence that some 300 Roman Catholic priests abused over a thousand children. I read part of the report, which is quoted as saying priests were raping little boys and girls And the men of God who were responsible for them not only did nothing, they hid it all. For decades, monsignors, auxiliary bishops, bishops, archbishops, cardinals have mostly been protected. Many, including some named in this report, have been promoted. All, that is, all the reports of accusation were brushed aside in every part of the state of Pennsylvania by church leaders who preferred to protect the abusers and their institution above all. But you see, in doing that, they were not protecting the institution. They sure as heck were not protecting the church, and they were not protecting 
those innocent victims. What are we to make of St. Paul's instructions to Christians not to take their grievances before civil courts? In chapter 6. Well, first of all, note that these are civil matters he's talking about. These are matters of money or property. And St. Paul is saying, look, you're going to get a better shake from those that are in the body of Christ than from the civil courts. I think anyone that's ever gone to court knows that, right? It's better to settle than to go to court. But what's happening with sexual sin, and particularly with our scandal of today, is that this is criminal behavior. This is criminal behavior, and the really sad thing is that the church that should have a higher level of justice and should have a higher level of protection for people actually has a lower standard than the courts of our nation. What does that say about the church? It says we really suck at this. It says that that particular branch of the historic church has let people down and damaged their faith, scandalized some of these people for life, driven them from the fold. Oh, there'll be an accounting for that, you can be sure. If not on this life, then in the next. But before we get too haughty and high on our horse, let's remember that the Anglican presence in this country, the Episcopal Church, from 1700-ish to 2003-ish, fell apart and was driven apart by sexual misconduct. Oh yeah, it wasn't abuse of innocent little children in our case, but it was not policing our own, letting clergy have affairs and just turning the other way. How many, I mean, I can, Leah's not here, I, but she'd be okay with me saying this. When I started dating Leah, she was leery to date me because she had heard about so many affairs with clergymen. I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to, to marry a clergyman. <laughs> Boy, what does that say about the Episcopal Church? What does that say about Anglicanism in the United States? And you see, it's still going on. It's still going on. When we don't police ourselves and confront sin for what it is, sin takes a hold and it leavens the whole lump and ruins the whole thing and people's Lives are ruined and assets are destroyed and buildings go away and, and the church is besmirched and scandalized. All because of cowardice and an inability to see and confront. We are stewards of God's treasures, of his mysteries, St. Paul tells us. And what that means is that we carry with us the very precious words of life from Jesus Christ, the very precious sacraments from his table that feed people and make them well again. If we can't be trusted, who can they go to? But there's hope. Look at John chapter 20, verse 19, our gospel reading. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood with them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Notice what Jesus is saying to the apostles. Peace be with you. I'm sending you, but I'm not sending you alone. I'm sending you with the Holy Spirit. In the next part of chapter 6, which we'll get to next week, St. Paul talks about the fact that we are no longer those that engage in, in, in sexual immorality. This is verse 9 of chapter 6. He says, Or do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the hope, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You see, there is forgiveness for us. There's forgiveness for all when repentance happens. And it's true that we'll have to face the earthly consequences of our sin. And yet God is always wanting us to come back, to turn back to him, to come back and be part of his people. God's constantly calling us as individuals to be washed and sanctified so that we might one day be presented to the Father as St. John the Divine writes in Revelation chapter 21 as a holy bride. And I saw the holy city, John writes, the new Jerusalem, which is an image for the church, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And while there have been many rotten priests, bishops, and members at all levels of the church, God continues to use bishops as the successor of the apostles to reform his church entrusted to them in John 20. Just look at us. Why are we doing what we're doing? Because bishops from Africa came and confronted sexual sin in this country and said, that's not right. And we're going to change that. They went out of their way, many personally financing their way here from Nigeria, from South America, from Kenya, from Rwanda, to bring things back into order in this country. That's the beauty of the church. That's the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit. That's God always working to correct the wrongs at a corporate level. And I believe that as individuals, those who humbly submit themselves to God's authority in the scriptures and the lesser authority of the bishops, this passage speaks clearly to us today, to leaders, both laity and clergy. We must hold ourselves to a higher standard. And not be afraid to confront malice and sin in our congregations for the poison that it is and for the sake of the congregation. We have to lose our blindness. We are not to excuse sin in ourselves or in our brothers and sisters, making light of it or winking at it. Rather, as St. Paul says, we are to mourn it, to be sorrowful about it in repentance. Secondly, as laity, you ought to expect clear biblical teaching from me 
and from all other leaders in the church, and in the wider church for that matter. What does the scripture say about that? You know, when we're ordained as priests, the bishop puts the Bible on our head and says, remember that you are under the word of God. You can hold me to it. Hold all clergy to it. We're to confront evil when dealing with our own sin, which Jesus says we have to do first, right? Remove the log from your own eye. But we have to deal with it. Deal with it urgently, friends, with your own sin. Root it out of yourself. Allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in you with examination and confession, whether it's private confession or corporate confession. And finally, we're to be gentle with our spiritual brothers and sisters, but firm in order to protect the rest of the church. Together, we must not cloud God's expectations in virtue or ethics to a confused world. We do them no favors. We have to learn what is good and what is evil as God defines it. Pursue good, flee evil, so that you can be a help to the person outside of the church. Returning to Raymond Carver's poem, the patient jumped up and sh to shake the doctor's hand because the doctor had had the courage to give him the diagnosis straight. May we have the courage to give God's diagnosis to each other, knowing that we're all in the same boat, and the humility to accept it for the hope of life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you asking for your guidance, and Lord, confessing our sins, repenting of them. Lord, we bring to you all those victims of the church, and we ask that somehow your Holy Spirit would touch their lives and that you would break through to them. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Roman church. We ask that you would strengthen that church and, and help them to confront the evil in their midst. Lord, we pray for all churches, including our own. Let us be submitted to your word and let us confront each other with love for the sake of ourselves and the sake of your church that we might be presented to you one day unblemished through Jesus' blood. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.